From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. It's been almost four months since the University of Wisconsin-Madison announced in March that they are moving all instruction online. Students were asked to vacate their dorms and the campus community was told that operations would not resume for at least three or four weeks. We're now in the first week of July and the university has announced plans to reopen in the fall and welcome students back to Madison, including first year students into resident halls with a mix of online and face-to-face classes. Here to talk about what the university and the political science department has been doing over the last several months is Professor John Zimbrunen, Chair of the Political Science Department and incoming Vice Provost of Teaching and Learning at the university starting in August. So thank you so much for being here with 1050 Bascom today, Professor Zimbrunen. I'm delighted to be here. I'm always, always pleased to be part of the podcast and so much appreciate how you all have kept the podcast going um, right through all of this craziness. Yeah, it's been really fun. So we can just start at the beginning, I guess, of all this. March 1st, life is relatively normal on campus, students and faculty. We're starting to get worried about COVID. Then 10 days later, the university announced its initial shutdown until April 6th. What happened behind the scenes in those 10 days that led to that decision? Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy, isn't it, to look back and think about that transition from relative normality to um, to something so far out of the normal. I, I've been thinking back lately. I, I flew to Los Angeles on a, on a fundraising trip uh, right around February 25th. I walked on the beach in Santa Monica um, there at the end of February, and then suddenly by mid-March, all of us are just sitting in our homes, um, unable, to, unable to go out and, and finding new, new ways to live our lives. I will tell you the truth. Um, between March 1st and... Um, the announcement 10 days later that we would be um, going online after spring break. The truth is um, nobody really knew much of anything at that point. So just like students were kind of looking around nervously and wondering what might happen, that was the case for faculty and staff. It was the case for me as department chair. You know, we were in that mode of kind of speculating and guessing about what might happen. Um, I think probably Two or three days before the official university announcement, I had begun to get some sense from contacts around campus that we were headed in that direction. So I might have had something like a 48-hour heads up um, as opposed to everybody else, a little bit of a head start to get going, but not much. It came on, it came on all of us just as suddenly as it did for students. So what was your experience as chair in that? Yeah, so, you know, it, it feels like... Um, you know, it, it feels like suddenly you've been handled the, handed this massive logistical project to try to get accomplished in the course really of a week, right? I mean, we had a week or 10 days um, between the announcement and when classes were to resume after spring break. Um, and, and I will tell you, it went remarkably smoothly. 
I think, and, and I hope that's the experience of our students. We've gotten really mostly positive feedback on how remote classes went um, during spring break or during the rest of the spring semester. Uh, and I, I think the reason it went relatively smoothly for us, a couple things I will point to. Um, one is we had such a high percentage of our faculty and instructors who had already had some experience with online teaching that for many people in the department, even though it was a stressful time, it wasn't doing something that they had never tried before. Um, so that helped a lot. Um, and then we had really remarkable support from the college and the university. So there are um, just incredibly talented instructional design support people and instructional technology support people on this campus. Um, and, and they were wonderful. You know, we had a, a team of experts assigned to our department by campus who we could turn to when we needed particular help. And so, you know, th there are some specific things that are challenging when you're trying to figure out whether to have that large intro to American politics lecture synchronous or asynchronous. And how do you, you know, can you offer an opportunity for some students to join you synchronously and then record it? and make sure it's recorded in a way that's accessible for everyone else. There's those kinds of technical challenges. The technical challenges around for the methods courses, if you've got to do mathematical notation, that's always a challenge for remote or online instruction. But I think, again, what really helped us is that we had a lot of experience already in the department, and we could all kind of lean on the people who had that experience, and then support when we needed it, and that was absolutely crucial. And the other thing I would just say is that I think all of us were um, really gratified. Um, I don't know that we were surprised, but definitely gratified by the way students responded, which is, um, you know, students for the most part took this in stride. Um, I think they recognized that, that um, faculty and instructors and staff were doing the best they could in a really, really challenging situation. Um, and so, you know, students, students worked with us. Uh, and, and so I, I think spring by and large was a success story in the context of a situation none of us would ever choose. You, you mentioned a lot of things that ended up going relatively well for the situation we were in. What are some things that you are hoping are going to go better than this spring? So one thing, if you notice, we're really careful when we talk about spring to use the language of remote and not online learning. And, and we'll use that same language in the fall. And, and in some ways, that's a kind of um, playing around with language. But it's meant, to, meant also to, to point to something serious and real, which is, you know, there are a set of uh, best practices and high standards for creating a truly fully online course that you intend to be online from the moment you conceive of the course and you build it at that high level of quality. And remote teaching and learning of the kind we did in the spring is not that, right? Remote is, oh my gosh, we've got to move these classes online. Um, you know, we've got to deliver them in a different modality. How do we do that the best we can on short notice? And so what I would, what I would hope for fall is that we're still going to be in that kind of remote space because we're, we're transitioning a lot of courses right now that were supposed to be face-to-face -face for fall, and now we know with the chancellor's announcement that they're going to be delivered remotely. But we want to get closer and closer to that full high-quality online standard, right? And I think you, you can see that in some of the summer courses we've offered over the years. Scott Strauss's genocide course, I think, is amazing online. I think a lot of people listening to this would, would agree with that, and that's just one example. So we gotta move, we gotta move towards that level of 
quality expectations. We won't get fully there this fall, um, but we got to move in that direction. So there's that just in terms of quality. Um, there are some important access issues that we've got to pay attention to, right? So, um, you know, it's, it, it, I was, I was down uh, on the little farm in Missouri that I grew up on a, a three or four weeks ago and tried to, um, to do a video call for a meeting and I made it about 10 minutes in and it turns out that the little farm I grew up on in rural Missouri doesn't have very good internet. Right. And, and when I finally got back on the meeting, it was with a group of advisors at, on campus. I said, look, I just experienced what a lot of our students are experiencing or are going to experience. And that's not just rural areas, right? That's all kinds of different areas that have issues with, with internet uh, bandwidth. And I think we've got to pay attention to that. Um, we also know there's, there's evidence out there that, um, that online learning impacts different students differently. I mean, students from underrepresented groups, students who have, um, you know, a particular need for learning accommodations. Those are groups we really need to be paying a lot of attention to first-gen college students. We've got to be thinking about the access and equity issues around remote learning. Um, so, so there's, there's some challenges out there, right? I mean, I think, and you can hear me there. I, I pat our, I think we can pat ourselves on the back some for how well we did in spring. And I think with fall coming around, we've just got to, we got to step our game up. Uh, you mentioned, and I'm sure a lot of listeners know about Chancellor Becky Blank's plan to reopen the university this fall. What are some of the details of this plan that the chancellor and the university has presented? Yeah, so on the instruction side of the plan, um, you know, there's a kind of uh, a hope that we can put, um, th that we can have as many classes as possible have some face-to-face -face meeting component this fall. Um, you know, I think that there's a general goal out there of if we can get up over 50% of classes having some scheduled face-to-face -face time with instructors and students, then we'll be doing well this fall. Um, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of challenges in getting to that number, right? Um, there's unbelievable challenges around um, classroom space. So a classroom that, uh, you know, if you want to have a discussion section with, with uh, 17 students as we do in political science, you probably need a classroom that usually would hold 60 or 70. And so we're just facing some real challenges around getting to that number. Um, but that's the basic goal for on, on the instructional side is to get up there around half or, or a little over half of classes with some face-to-face -face component. Um, you know, the other key parts of that plan that, to be honest, I know less in detail about because it's a little outside of my, my particular administrative area, um, but there's a lot that has to be done to make it possible to have significant numbers of people on campus. And so there is a massive effort going on um, to um, basically make on-demand COVID testing available for students, faculty, and staff on campus this fall. So the, the idea there is anyone who wants a test on any particular day can get a test. Um, there's a capacity issue there. There's a logistics issue there. There's making sure that you have the labs available to uh, process and analyze those tests. Um, then there's the question of what you do with those that testing information once you have it. And that means you know, the university's planning on hiring a bunch of contract tracers um, to, to um, try to understand if, if the virus is on campus, where it is, and how it might be going to spread, right? There's big challenges around the residence halls and figuring out how to test and trace within the residence halls 
how you um, how you refit that incredibly important work around community building that goes on in the residence halls, especially for first year students. How do you do that in this context, right? So that plan is um, unbelievably complicated, and it's a kind of all hands on deck. Everybody, everybody around campus has a hand in it. Yeah, it sounds like kind of a nightmare to plan for for something that we know so little about. That's right. And then there's the there's the, you know, the the variable out there of what the virus does between now and September. You know, if you look over the weekend, you see that the, the case numbers in Wisconsin have peaked up a little bit over the weekend. You know, what's that going to be like a month from now? What's that going to be like two months from now? Um, you know, I don't think we know. And um, so everybody's got to put the best plan in place they can and then um, and then be be flexible and be adaptable because that's going to be the name of the game. With the department specifically, is there anything that some of these changes might mean for poli-sci students or students interested in poli-sci classes, or is it still just a little bit too early to tell? So we're kind of in the middle of the process right now. We spent the last two weeks ending this past Friday um, working through uh, the major changes to our fall timetable. So Every class that was on our fall timetable is still on our fall timetable. Um, the, things, the things that will change for our fall timetable of classes are whether the class is being offered remotely or face-to-face. -face. So any class with more than 50 students automatically goes um, online, right? Classes with under 50 students are gonna be a mix. Um, you know, so if you, we're going to take um, intro to international relations. That lecture is going to be online, and there'll be both some online and some face-to-face -face, um, discussion sections. So that process we have more or less sorted out. We we have a, a revised fall timetable. Now we wait to see how um, how the classroom scheduling process plays out. Because again, those discussion sections can no longer be held in one of those small classrooms over in social sciences. They got to move to a bigger classroom. And we really don't know how that's going to shake out when all of the departments like us ask for those spaces for their discussion sections or their other small classes. So we've got another week or two before we see what's actually possible in terms of those face-to-face -face meetings. Then sometime around late July is going to be the time when students are going to want to start taking another look at their schedules. Their schedules, um, again, the meeting days and times are not likely to change for political science, but whether it's remote or online and where it's going to be held will change. And there's going to be just a, um, a you know, a messy process of folks needing to go through schedule changes that is going to happen um, sometime late July, early August. And, you know, our advisors are gearing up to support people doing that. I think the main thing that we would ask for is just patience. We're, we're, we're working through this process. We've got a plan to make our way through it. And, um, and we're doing the best we can. You know, the other thing I would just throw out there is, um, you know, we're trying to have our students well-being in mind. We're also thinking a lot about our faculty and staff. And so, you know, moving classes face-to-face -face means asking some people to come in and teach face-to-face. -face. And some people are more comfortable with that than other people are. Some people have risk factors for themselves or for their families or, or um, people who they live with. 
who, you know, we need to take those risk factors into account. So that's another process we're going through now is thinking about how does that schedule for remote and face-to-face -face classes that we've developed mapped onto the accommodations that we need to provide people um, to make sure that, uh, that we're not asking anybody to take an undue risk coming into the classroom. You have recently just started the transition to your new job on campus as the Vice Provost of Teaching and Learning for the entire university. What kinds of conversations are you having with advising teaching groups, provost, chancellor about making this reopening happen? Yeah, so, so first of all, I will just tell you that I continue to think I'm the luckiest person in the world. I mean, I've loved being a faculty member and, and being department chair has honestly just been wonderful. And now I get to go take on this job that if I were gonna write a job description for myself at this point in my life and career, this would be it, right? Like I get to have, uh, I, I get to take part in conversations and decisions on uh, just an amazing range of teaching and learning matters on campus. So it's it's a really um, it's a really fabulous thing, and and I'm just so excited to take it on, even in the midst of everything that's going on. Um, there's been since you know the middle of March. Um, a really sort of unbelievable uh, planning effort going on behind the scenes. And that's at the campus level and also down at the level of the schools and colleges um, where it's been all hands on deck. It's been everybody, um, you know, being willing to step out of their normal roles and do things to get us through this crisis that, that they don't usually fall in their work description. You know, I'm on a, um, a campus level planning group that meets at least once, often twice a week. It's broken out into 10 or 12 different subgroups and working groups that are, that are um, tackling a whole different, you know, there, there's a working group for laboratory classes. There's a, you know, a working group now just around um, face covering requirements for the fall, right? So, there's a ton of work going on trying to sort through all of these things um, that, you know, I learn something new every time I'm in one of these meetings because it's something different. Um, the conversations, the big broad conversations, right, are there just is, there just is some, some tension and some complexity in this situation, right? On the one hand, um, we know that a lot of students um, want us to be back face-to-face -face as soon as possible and as much as possible. We know the people didn't sign up to come to UW-Madison and then sit in their apartments or in their parents' basement um, to take their classes remotely, right? We know that. And so, you know, there is just um, a real incentive there to get back face-to-face. Um, -face. We know beyond those reasons, we know that there are certain kinds of learning that are only gonna happen face-to-face. -face. You can do remarkable things online. There are times when an online course makes more sense than anything else. And then there are things that you really just need to be sitting in a room with other people to do at the highest possible level. And those exist in tension with, all of that exists in tension with trying to figure out how you um, protect people and, and preserve the well-being of the community and how you be a good part of the broader Madison and broader Wisconsin community, right? What we do on campus matters for the Madison community and we have to pay attention to that. And one thing I would just say is that whether you agree or disagree with the decisions that are being made, 
Um, and there's lots of people who are on both sides of those. The conversations are incredibly serious and there are people working incredibly hard to make the right decisions. Um, and um, so, you know, that, that, that's my main takeaway point is, um, you know, just no one is taking this lightly. And, and, you know, you'll see every now and then in commentary that this is, that it's economics driving these decisions. Um, look, the economic future of the university is unclear at this point. You know, we know we're taking budget hits and we know we'll take more budget hits. And we know that if we were to stay remote for, for a long time, we'd probably take worse budget hits. Um, at the same time, I just have, there, there's just no doubt in my mind that, um, that if the top leadership of this university were to have guidance that said it is not safe to be on campus this fall, that we would not be on campus this fall, regardless of the economic um, uh, implications. So I do have that basic trust and faith in the, in the higher leadership. Um, and I think that's the kind of decisions they're making. But it's tough. It's really tough. So you, you touched on something that is actually in the news today. Harvard just a couple hours ago announced that there would be no in-person classes at all. They would be completely online. Is that a conversation that is happening at all? In, in terms of is somebody sitting right now and thinking, gosh, maybe we should reverse the, the announcement from a couple weeks ago and, um, and move to fully online for the fall, I, I have heard no indication that that's happening right now. <laughs> what I do think is that it, it is constantly being thought about and evaluated and reevaluated. And I can just promise you that top leadership at the university is paying close attention to those COVID numbers. Um, you know, they're talking to the leadership of university health services. They're also mobilizing the unbelievable expertise that exists on this campus, right? Um, and it is quite amazing. I, I'm putting together a course this fall called um, uh, Pandemic Resilience in the Wisconsin Idea. And it brings in experts from a variety of disciplines across campus to talk about crisis and resilience. And, and you know, there's, there's a faculty member from the School of Medicine and Public Health who's going to contribute to that course who is on the CDC's COVID vaccine committee, right? Um, there's folks in the statistics department who have been working um, for the last two months on how to effectively do contact tracing on campus. And, and I just mentioned some of those examples because, you know, when you think about the leadership of the university working to make these decisions, it's not just two or three of them sitting on a Zoom call. We can't use Zoom at the university because it's not supported. It would be a Microsoft Teams or a WebEx call. Um, it's not just two or three of them doing it. It's pulling on the expertise of the university to try to figure out um, what's doable and what's not doable. And, and so those conversations are ongoing. I can promise you that. Um, but I would not expect a decision anytime soon that would say we're going fully online in the fall. I think we should be ready to do this kind of hybrid uh, approach of a mix of online and face-to-face -face in the fall and work to make the best of it and recognize that, you know what, it might be sometime in October, we might have to move more fully online. We know that after Thanksgiving, we're going to be nothing but online. Um, again, a 
gets back to that flexibility piece. Luckily, we have some good practice and flexibility from this spring. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to touch on about pandemic news before we turn just a little bit towards uh, some protest stuff? I guess the only other thing I would say is that as we move into this uncertain fall and, you know, um, again, ask for patience from folks as we at the department level make our way through planning for the fall. The, the other thing we're all going to need to do in the fall um, when we start to see each other face to face around campus again is we're all going to need to continue to extend some grace to one another. We're going to need to give one another space to, to, to work through and process what's going on. We're going to have to look out for one another. So one special plea there is, um, you know, there's going to be a university requirement that you wear face coverings when you're on campus. Um, that's going to be whether you're, you know, um, in your residence hall or in a classroom really just a special plea to just follow those rules, right? You're, you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the people uh, around you um, and for the broader community. And I just think we need to, we need to continue to, to operate in that space where we're, we're looking out for each other um, as we move into the fall. It's going to be super important. Yeah, that is excellent advice that I think everyone should definitely take to heart. So, we haven't yet talked about the Black Lives Matter protests going on around the country, which are still going on despite coverage kind of moving away. Uh, there have been discussions within the university and within the department about how uh, the many crucial and important issues that the protests have highlighted. Can you share at all what some of those discussions have looked like in the department? So, you know, like the university in general and like the state in which um, our university is located, the Department of Political Science is predominantly white. Um, uh, and the, the real truth is um, we need to do better in terms of diversifying our political science community in that way. Um, you know, you might have seen in the local media um, a couple weeks back that a group of our graduate students produced a report about um, faculty diversity in political science at UW uh, since the 1970s. And, you know, one of their striking findings was that um, there, in no year since 1976, I believe, has there been more than one black faculty member at a time in political science. So we've had several black faculty members over uh, those decades, but never has there been more than one black faculty member in the department at a time. Um, and that's a really striking finding. And it, it I think, highlights um, the, the lack of diversity in the department, and it's incredibly important for us to address that. I think it's something that, um, that folks in the department are, are attentive to and concerned about. Um, you know, I can I can give you lots of um, inside baseball reasons to suggest why it's really hard to diversify. There's budgetary factors that make it challenging. Um, but you know what? Those just risk being excuses, uh, and you don't want to divert attention from doing the hard work um, and the necessary work to change things in that way. 
Um, another really, really important thing uh, related to just, you know, the basic task of, of building a more diverse community is making sure that you have um, a, a climate and an environment in place that's welcoming of diversity. And so, um, and that's, you know, for a couple reasons. I mean, one, it's just the right thing to do. Another is if you're hoping to diversify, it's just not going to work um, if you don't create a place where people feel like they can come and build their careers and stay, right? Um, we've been working and having a lot of conversations throughout my time as chair about workplace climate. Um, and, and that's not to say that, you know, we necessarily had a horrible workplace climate. I don't think we did. It's, it's always been a collegial department, a place that people by and large like to come uh, and work. Um, but we got to pay attention and make sure that we're, that, that we're not, um, without thinking, doing things that make our, our workspace less inclusive and welcoming, um, whether that's for faculty or staff or grad students or undergrad students. So those conversations about climate have been super important. So that's a set of considerations around sort of diversity in the people who work in political science and, and then a set of things around climate that um, are important if we're gonna be more diverse. I think the department, and I think my colleagues share this, can do better than it has done in terms of making sure that its curriculum reflects the um, sort of um, most important issues out there today. Um, I mean, to be blunt, I think we need to teach more courses about race and identity um, than we have in the past. Um, and and that's work that I can tell you there will begin to be some changes on that front this coming year. Um, you know, none of this is 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 easy stuff. Um, and and not to not to make it sound like uh, those of us working on a college campus have it really tough. When I think if you look out at what's happened to Black people in this country, um, you know, we see what real suffering is, right? Um, but one of the things for people like me, I mean, look, I'm a, a middle-aged, straight white guy with um, an advanced degree and um, more job security than most people can ever imagine. Um, one thing somebody like me, and there's a lot of people like me around a college campus, one thing that somebody like me has to do is do the kind of really hard self-work of saying, okay, so what, what privileges am I carrying around? What work are my identities doing for me in the world? What challenges come with those identities? There are some. There's also a lot of unearned privilege. And then what am I going to do with that privilege and status that I have? What can I do to try to make some difference in the world? Um, and that's really hard. That, that, that's hard work to do, and it's work that we can't avoid as individuals. And it's work that we can't avoid as a university. Look, this university continues to have challenges around making sure that students of color are truly welcome on campus. Um, we've got we to gotta do that work, and we won't, we won't make progress on that work if we're not honest with ourselves first. I, I don't know exactly what will happen moving forward in this country, right? It certainly feels in the last few weeks like we are at an inflection point socially and culturally and politically on issues of race. I hope that's true. 
Um, I think if we're going to do anything with that inflection point, again, people like me have to do better and do more. So I, I will tell you back on my, um, you know, my new position, um, you know, issues of diversity and equity and, and crucially classroom climate. We talk a lot about campus climate and, and whether campus climate is inclusive and welcoming. We got to make sure classrooms are inclusive and welcoming. Those issues were always really important to me moving into this vice provost role. They can't be anything but the number one priority for me moving forward. And so that, that's the challenge for me is to hold myself to a higher standard moving forward. And, and I don't mean this is not all individual work and I'm not trying to like glorify myself or hold myself up as oh, I'll make all this change. Um, it's work that we have to do together and there's a bunch of structural and institutional work that we have to do at the university and we have to do as a, as a nation. Um, and there's a lot of individual work that, that a bunch of us can do that we that we haven't done as well as we could. Yeah, that is all excellent insight into the department and the university and your role. Thank so, you so much for joining cool. us today, Professor Zambrunin. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with the pod and we hope you'll be able to talk with us real soon. All right, thanks a lot, Adam. Have a good day. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.